1: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in the wilds of Connecticut, this is Obscure Season 2, Frankenstein. I am your host, your ear lover, your prince of pretension, your Georgianologist, and literary mansplainer-in-chief Michael Ian Black, excited as always to join you, and today brings with it a special anticipation because I record this the day before Election Day 2020. And as we speak about the horror, it is certainly pertinent to describe the last four years of our American experiment. Uh, how do we describe them? Like this? It's fucking fucked up. I mean... Clearly, like I'm a writer, so I have a way with words. But that little piece of eloquence right there, I think, is almost me showing off at how good I am at description. Just like fucking fucked up. That's where we are. That's where we have been. And it is interesting to contemplate experimentation, American or scientific. As we consider young Victor Frankenstein and his journey, dark journey, uh, from paradise into ruin. Is the nation on a similar path? Hard to say. As I peer into my prognosticator's ball, I have no idea what the election holds. As you are listening to this, if you're listening to it when it is posted, you will have a much better idea of what is happening. The outlook right now is cloudy and perhaps a bit grim, not necessarily because the results will be bad, although that's certainly a possibility, but because we don't know yet how it is going to play out in the nation writ large, regardless of the electoral tallies. Will it just be ultimately another quiet election? Or will there be something more sinister afoot? We don't know yet. You know, because as you are listening to this, it is probably two weeks after the day that I am recording it. But I don't know. And I'm jealous of you, because you know shit I don't know. And that is annoying, because I am the mansplainer-in-chief. And yet you, future people, you know so much more than I do, and I can't help but express annoyance and frustration with you. Do I blame you? Yes. Yes. So let us put our concerns uh, aside for a moment. At least I will put my concerns aside. Your concerns two weeks from now are probably a bit different. So uh, I will put my own concerns aside. It is great to be back here in the wilds of Connecticut after my sojourn to the West Coast. I had a good time. Living in the Hyatt for two weeks was a lot like being on a cruise when I wasn't working. There was almost nothing to do, and I couldn't leave. At least I wasn't allowed to leave. I did leave a couple times. I went to Target to buy pita chips and Pop-Tarts. Look, who cares? Who cares what junk food I was filling my fat face with? The fact is I left the bubble, and that was against the rules, but I did it. But like on a cruise, like you're just on this, you're just in this bubble. You're just on this little floating environment, where you can't really get off. And I mean, believe me, I got off, but you, know, you can't leave. And so when I wasn't working, there was really nothing to do because most of my friends who were working on the show, they were working. And so I just had days of restful Twitter scrolling and napping and online poker playing. And my days became structured around the meals, whatever the meals the Hyatt was serving that day were. Um, highlights of the meals they had some pretty good enchiladas and some pretty good tomato soup. All right. Enough about my stay in California. As I said, the entire network got canceled while I was out there, which was a first for me. I've certainly been on shows that got canceled, but it's rare. It's a rare occurrence when your network itself is canceled. But speaking as somebody who has been frequently canceled online, it wasn't so bad, you know? The first time you get canceled, oh, that's, that's bad. The second time, you're like, yeah, it's not so bad. The third time, you're like, whatever. Chapter three. When I had attained the age of 17, my parents resolved that I should become a student at the University of Ingolstadt. I mean, how are you not going to say Ingolstadt like that? Of course you're going to. So that's what I did. Um, and I mentioned this last time, but I'm also tracking the parallels a little bit between young Victor Frankenstein and poor, pathetic Jude Fawley, who, you know, they, they, they have been on a similar path of a uh, uh, thirst for knowledge to this point. But of course, here their paths must diverge because Jude never could get into university, Ingolstadt or otherwise. I had hitherto attended the schools of Geneva, but my father thought, oh, there, uh, there's a footnote in Ingolstadt, and I almost missed it, and um, I'm not even that interested, but it gives me more opportunities to say Ingolstadt, uh, a Bavarian university that existed from 1472 to 1800, associated in, oh, here we go, in the late 18th century with the feared sect of conspirators known as the Illuminati, thought by some to be fomenters of the French Revolution. Okay, I'm glad I took the time to look at that footnote, because everybody who knows me knows I love the Illuminati. You know, I love any group of dark conspirators operating in the shadows. Generally, we tend to think of them as evil, manipulating Jews like myself, the Rothschilds and George Soros and the rest. But what's nice about the Illuminati is that I don't think there's any anti-Semitism associated with it. So that's a, the Bilderberg group, right? That's another one. So that's a group I can get behind. Right, because I don't feel like I'm I'm to blame for it, uh, and I don't I don't feel any guilt by association or any shame or anger. So just the Illuminati, it's just a shadow, it's just a shadow organization, just existing out there pulling levers uh, and and making making the globe spin round, you know, on the on the tip of its finger like a Harlem Globetrotter. Illuminati, fabulous, good. Uh, I had hitherto attended the schools of Geneva, but my father thought it necessary for the completion of my education that I should be made acquainted with other customs than those of my native country. Yeah, Belgium and Switzerland, they're like total opposites. You know, one of them makes chocolate, the other one makes chocolate. My departure was therefore fixed at an early date, but before the day resolved upon could arrive the first misfortune of my life occurred in omen, as it were, of my future misery. Good. You know, we've been waiting, 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 waiting for misfortune. Last time he's like, oh, this terrible event happened. And what was it? A tree got blowed up by lightning. Whoa, oh, the tree got blowed up. Ooh, changed the course of my life. Come on, dude. That's not the kind of misfortune we're looking for. This is the kind of misfortune we're looking for. Elizabeth had caught the scarlet fever. Finally, Elizabeth gonna die. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting for Elizabeth to die. And it looks like maybe now finally she's going to die or at least get very sick. That's what we've been waiting for. Hey, Helen Keller, that's how she went uh, deaf and mute. She caught the scarlet fever. And I don't think Elizabeth is going to turn into Helen Keller, but... You know, who knows? The outcome is unpredictable, except that Frankenstein already said she was going to die, so maybe not that unpredictable. Her illness was severe, and she was in the greatest danger. During her illness, many arguments had been urged to persuade my mother to refrain from attending upon her. She had at first yielded to our entreaties, but when she heard that the life of her favorite was menaced she could no longer control her anxiety. She attended her sickbed. Her watchful attentions triumphed over the malignity of the distemper. Elizabeth was saved. Boo! Boo! But the consequences of this imprudence were fatal to her preserver. Yay! Yay! Mama gonna die! Mama gonna die! Look, I'm not rooting for anybody's death in real life, but in the book, yeah, yeah. Because it keeps things moving along, you know? People drop in here and there. It's exciting. We like it when people die in books, you know? It's fun. On the third day, my mother sickened. Her fever was accompanied by the most alarming symptoms, and the looks of her medical attendants prognosticated the worst event. On her deathbed, the fortitude and benignity well, I guess we would, so, you, you know, you say benign, but how do you say benignity? Do you say benignity? I kind of like benignity better because it sounds like dignity. And I've never seen the word in print before and I'm not going to look it up. I am going to look it up. God damn it. Let me go to my research machine. I hate this. I hate that I have to look things up when I should know. I mean, not that I should know them, but I don't like to stop what I'm doing. Okay, how do you say it? Benignity. 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 Okay, yeah, so it sounds like dignity, but it's benignity. On her deathbed, the fortitude and benignity of this best of women did not desert her. Well, I mean, Alexander Hamilton's going to have something to say about that, right? He called Eliza the best of women. Right, right around the same time. I wonder if that was a phrase that was common in the parlance then. I mean, I don't know that he called her that, but Lynn manuel Miranda, personal friend. You know, he was drawing on sources. I assume that he called her the best of women. I'll have to ask Lynn manuel Miranda. because he's a personal friend. The benignity of this best of women did not desert her. She joined the hands of Elizabeth and myself. My children, she said. My firmest hopes of future happiness were placed on the prospect of your union. What? This expectation will now be the consolation of your father. Elizabeth, my love, you must supply my place to my younger children. Alas, I regret that I am taken from you, and, happy and beloved as I have been, is it not hard to quit you all? but these are not thoughts befitting me. I will endeavor to resign myself cheerfully to death and will indulge a hope of meeting you in another world. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, come on. I mean, it's lovely, you know, it's poetic and romantical and all of that. But the idea that she's like, laying on her deathbed, her tresses splayed around her head like a halo. And she says, I will endeavor to resign myself cheerfully to death. I mean, come on. But here's the thing that struck me. My children, she said, my firmest hopes of future happiness were placed on the prospect of your union. He wants Elizabeth and Victor to marry. I mean I get it they're not related by blood but they've grown up as brother and sister more than cousins is the phrase that uh he used. I mean it it you know it it's no more illegal than Woody Allen marrying Soon-Yi but it's almost as gross the only difference is you know it's not a father daughter thing it's a brother sister thing. I mean that's fucking gross. What were they doing there in the 18th century? Right? Well, we know they were having orgies. She died calmly, and her countenance expressed affection, even in death. I need not describe the feelings of those whose dearest ties are rent by that most irreparable evil, the void that presents itself to the soul, and the despair that is exhibited on the countenance. It is so long before the mind can persuade itself that she, whom we saw every day, and whose very existence appeared a part of our own, can have departed forever. That the brightness of a beloved eye can have been extinguished, and the sound of a voice so familiar and dear to the ear can be hushed, never more to be heard. These are the reflections. Of the first days but when the lapse of time proves the reality of the evil then the actual bitterness of grief commences yet from whom has not that rude hand rent away some dear connection and why should i describe a sorrow which all have felt and must feel the time at length arrives when grief is rather an indulgence than a necessity, and the smile that plays upon the lips, although it may be deemed a sacrilege, is not banished. My mother was dead, but we still had duties which we ought to perform. We must continue our course with the rest and learn to think ourselves fortunate, whilst one remains whom the spoiler had not seized. Well, that's a lovely paragraph, Mary Shelley. I mean, just a first-rate paragraph describing the process of mourning and early grief. I mean, just spot on. It is so long before the mind can persuade itself that she whom we saw every day and whose very existence appeared a part of our own can have departed forever. Exactly right. We've all been there, right? And, uh, and if not, we're all going to get there soon. Let's just take a quick break, and then we'll be right back on Obscure. Okay, back to the book. My departure for Ingolstadt, which had been deferred by these events, was now again determined upon. I obtained from my father a respite of some weeks. It appeared to me sacrilege so soon to leave the repose akin to death of the house of mourning and to rush into the thick of life. I was new to sorrow, but it did not the less alarm me. I was unwilling to quit the sight of those that remained to me. And above all, I desired to see my sweet Elizabeth in some degree consoled. Well, sure, but now, you know, the term sweet Elizabeth takes on a different meaning, doesn't it? I mean, did she really mean that my firmest hopes of future happiness were placed on the prospect of your union? It's just weird. It's like she bought him a child bride, right? She took this angelical little girl from the family and was like, yeah, he'd be, she'd be good for my son. I mean, it's just weird. It's just weird. You know, we've been talking about, uh, slightly mentioning Jude Fowley, but it is also worth noting the similarities between Elizabeth Frankenstein and Sue Bridehead, also an ethereal creature upon whom the light always shines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These heroines of this century seem to share this. You know, the mother too. They're these ethereal beings just kind of billowing in the wind. And it's, you know, it's sweet, it's sentimental, it's romantic, it's endearing, but it doesn't feel true. You know, it feels like a sketch. Sue, Bridehead, was revealed to be far more complex, I think, than At least to this point, Elizabeth Frankenstein has been drawn. I mean, Sue had layers. She was complicated. She was a silk sheet, but wrinkled. Elizabeth seems to have no such wrinkles at this point. She indeed veiled her grief and strove to act the comforter to us all. She looked steadily on life and assumed its duties with courage and zeal. She devoted herself to those whom she had been taught to call her uncle and cousins. Never was she so enchanting as at this time, when she recalled the sunshine of her smiles and spent them upon us. She forgot even her own regret in her endeavors to make us forget the day of my departure at length arrived. Clerval spent the last evening with us. He had endeavored to persuade his father to permit him to accompany me and to become my fellow student, but in vain. His father was a narrow-minded traitor and saw idleness and ruin in the aspirations and ambition of his son. Henry deeply felt the misfortune of being debarred from a liberal education. He said little, but when he spoke, I read in his kindling eye and in his animated glance a restrained but firm resolve not to be chained to the miserable details of commerce. We sat late. We could not tear ourselves away from each other, nor persuade ourselves to say the word farewell. It was sad, and we retired under the pretense of seeking repose." each fancying that the other was deceived. But when at morning's dawn I descended to the carriage which was, which was to convey me away, they were all there, my father again to bless me, Clerval to press my hand once more, my Elizabeth to renew her entreaties that I would write often and to bestow the last feminine attentions on her playmate and friend. I threw myself into the chaise that was to convey me, chaise, chaise, I don't know, chaise long, I'm going to say chaise, that was to convey me away and indulged in the most melancholy reflections. I, who had ever been surrounded by amiable companions, continually engaged in endeavoring to bestow mutual pleasure, I was now alone. In the university, whither I was going, I must form my own friends and be my own protector. My life had hitherto been remarkably secluded and domestic, and this had given me invincible repugnance to new countenances. I loved my brothers Elizabeth and Clerval. These were old, familiar faces. Footnote, because that's in quotes. Uh, Old, familiar faces. Like maybe it's the refrain of a song. These old, familiar faces that I once knew When Clerval and Elizabeth were my friend's few And so I go to university, so sad to leave old Geneva. Old Familiar Faces, reference to Charles Lamb's poem, The Old Familiar Faces, from 1798, which begins, Where are they gone? The Old Familiar Faces. Well, now this is fucking annoying, Mary Shelley. You fucked up again, Mary Shelley, you fucked up. How could it refer to old familiar faces from 1798 when the story takes place in the, at the latest, the mid 1700s, right? Maybe 1770, 1780 at the latest. God damn it. I hate this. I hate anachronisms. I mean, I love anachronisms in comedy, but not in my horror stories. It it pulls me right out. You pulled me right out, Mary Shelley, with your anachronisms. Why do you do this to me when I'm trying to read your book? Don't you want me to enjoy it, Mary? I'm sorry. That was my Mary Shelley voice. I'm sorry. Um, But unfortunately, it sounded a little bit like a Jim Gaffigan character voice. Why are you ripping off my voices? These were old, familiar faces. But I believed myself totally unfitted for the company of strangers. Such were my reflections as I commenced my journey. But as I proceeded, my spirits and hopes rose. I ardently desired the acquisition of knowledge. I had often, when at home, thought it hard to remain during my youth cooped up in one place and had longed to enter the world and take my station among other human beings. Now my desires were complied with, and it would indeed have been folly to repent. I had sufficient leisure for these and many other reflections during my journey to Ingolstadt, which was long and fatiguing. At length, the high white steeple of the town met my eyes. I alighted and was conducted to my solitary apartment to spend the evening as I pleased. So he's reached his own Christchurch, hasn't he? But he is greeted with warmth, affection, and a little abode, and not uh, stone dust and the derisive looks of professors and faculty alike. That is what money buys you. Because Jude and Victor would have been fast friends, I think, right? They have a similar temperament. Um, they're both hungry for knowledge. They both want to go to university. They're both in love with an angel. Like, you know, it's like they could have been fast friends in another, in another life. The next morning I delivered my letters of introduction and paid a visit to some of the principal professors. Chance, or rather the evil influence, the angel of destruction which asserted omnipotent sway over me from the moment I turned my reluctant steps from my father's door. (laughs) (laughs) So, it might have been chance, or it might have been the angel of destruction, which asserted omnipotent sway over me from the moment I turned my reluctant steps from my father's door, led me first to M. Krempe, professor of natural philosophy. He was an uncouth man, but deeply imbued in the secrets of his science, and I guess he's going to lead to Frankenstein's undoing. He asked me several questions concerning my progress in the different branches of science appertaining to natural philosophy. I replied carelessly and, partly in contempt, mentioned the names of my alchemists as the principal authors I had studied. The professor stared. Have you? he said. Really spent your time in studying such nonsense? I replied in the affirmative. Every minute, continued Mr. Krempey with warmth, every instant that you have wasted on these books is utterly and entirely lost. You have burdened your memory with exploded systems and useless names. Good God! In what desert land have you lived, where no one was kind enough to inform you that these fancies which you have so greedily imbibed are a thousand years old and as musty as they are ancient? I little expected, in this enlightened and scientific age, to find a disciple of Albertus Magnus and Paracelsus. 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 My dear sir, you must begin your studies entirely anew. Well, he told him, didn't he? I mean, I've been telling him too, but he doesn't listen to me. Victor, why don't you listen to Michael? He only has your best interests at heart. Don't tell me what to do! He's not my real dad! No, but he's an avid reader. So saying... He stepped aside and wrote down a list of several books treating of natural philosophy which he desired me to procure, and dismissed me after mentioning that in the beginning of the following week he intended to commence a course of lectures upon natural philosophy in its general relations, and that M. Waldman, a fellow professor, would lecture upon chemistry the alternate days that he omitted. I returned home not disappointed, for I have said that I had long considered those authors useless whom the professor reprobated, but I returned, not at all the more inclined, to recur to these studies in any shape. M. Krempe was a squat little man, with a gruff voice and a repulsive countenance. The teacher, therefore, did not prepossess me in favor of his pursuits, in rather a too philosophical and connected a strain perhaps i have given an account of the conclusions i had come to cons- i had come to concerning them in my early years as a child i had not been content with the results promised by the modern professors of natural science with a confusion of ideas only to be accounted for by my extreme youth and my want of a guide on such matters, I had retrod the steps of knowledge along the paths of time and exchanged the discoveries of recent inquirers for the dreams of forgotten alchemists. Besides, I had a contempt for the uses of modern natural philosophy. It was very different when the masters of the science sought immortality and power. Such views, although futile, were grand, but now the scene was changed. The ambition of the inquirer seemed to limit itself to the annihilation of those visions on which my interest in science was chiefly founded. I was required to exchange shimmerers of boundless grandeur for realities of little worth. Well, I guess I'll stop at that paragraph. But you know, we're seeing again this. This thing that I don't really like in literature or in films or whatever in the arts where you know he rejects the professor who he basically agrees with by the way in the in the broad in the macro but he rejects him because of his manner but also his appearance and in Shelley and in Hardy and in all kinds of books we see that somebody's character is reflected in their countenance I don't love it you know, it's not, it's just not that interesting to me um, because it, it requires the body to be metaphor and, you know, Susan Sontag put that baby to bed, you know, I mean, but, you know, she and eloquently she owns that, but you know, the idea that like, oh, he's stooped over. So he's, you know, dumb, a dumbass, or something, or he squat and he's therefore has nothing of value to say. Um, I don't like it. You know, it's fine. I you know, I get it. It's a it's a it's a it's a convention, a literary convention. I just don't care for it because it flies in the face of everything that I know about humanity. You know, there's some evil fuckers out there who are pretty good looking, and vice versa. In fact, in my experience, uh the better looking you are, maybe the more prone to misdeeds you become. Because you've seen the world open its arms to you, and you come to expect that uh, it will always do so. Whereas if you have to work a little harder for it, I think you develop some empathy and kindness. Either that, or you just become a total monster. I mean, maybe the body is mod- metaphor. I don't know. Susan Sontag, where are you to answer these questions? I would interview her, but she dead, just like mama. Susan is dead. Mama is dead. Everybody going to die. Um, so, so Victor is off, you know, he's, he's at university and pretty much from the moment he sets foot on campus, he's like, fuck this place because he didn't, he, cause he didn't like the tone that the professor took with him, just like he didn't like his father's tone. So, you know, he's got a bit of the rebel in him. He's a little James Deany in that way. He just, he doesn't like it when older male figures tell him what's what he gets resentful and he starts lashing out. You know who else is like that? Me. 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 I'm I'm kind of a dick like Frankenstein sometimes. I don't I, I you know, I have a real authority problem. Maybe most people do, I don't know. But I don't like people telling me what to do and I don't like when they're condescending about it. I've gotten better at dealing with it, and believe me, nobody is more condescending than me as evidenced by this podcast that is what i do i am the prince of pretension and the count of condescension however i don't like it when the roles are reversed because i am a flawed human being i am in short a dickhead all right let us pause our reading uh let us focus on the election tomorrow you are focusing on the election from 2 weeks ago we are in very different places emotionally, you and I. I have anxiety for one reason. You no doubt have anxiety for another. Related, but almost certainly different reason. Or perhaps elation because your preferred candidate won, the, uh, uh, the defeated candidate, conceded, and all is continuing the way it is meant to and has for the duration of our American experiment to this point. I am doubtful that that is where you are right now, emotionally. I am hopeful, but doubtful. Can you be hopeful and doubtful? I suppose. Uh, I hope it happens, but I doubt it shall. So we'll see. Uh, I'm going to be a poll worker tomorrow. Perhaps I will relay my experiences to you about that the next time uh, we reconnect. I'm not looking forward to it because I'm going to be among strangers and uh, with a mask on and peeling stickers and standing... For 14 hours or so in a community center helping people vote. It is necessary work. I think it might even be paid work, although I would happily do it for free, and I'm sure it's not, I'm sure I'm not getting paid very much. But the point is, I'm trying to do a good civic deed, and like all good deeds, it is certainly going to be punished because my back is going to hurt, I'm going to be bored, and I'm going to be annoyed because, again, I am a dick. So, I'll relay those experiences to you the next time we meet on another, uh, what, Uh, thrilling? I mean, so far it's not thrilling. Spine tingling? I mean, I'm trying to make it so, but it really isn't. Um, Plotting. On another plotting episode of Obscure. Obscure Season 2 Frankenstein is produced by Robin Lynn, Jennifer Brennan, Mary Shimkin, and myself here in the wilds of Connecticut, where I record, and elsewhere. Original music by Craig Wedron. If you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts and drop in some stars for us, why don't you? Write a kind review, why don't you? It helps. How does it help? I have no idea, but it makes me feel good.